there are certain nights where we, um, I would say, sip like cherry juice. Or there is this Russian cherry juice that um, every time we go to Russia, I'm a big fan of cherry pie. I'm <clears throat> not a sweet tooth, but for whatever reason, cherry pie kind of gets it to me. And uh, this particular juice tastes just like cherry pie. And I, like, you can't drink it quick and long. You just have to sit there and just sip it, you know, and just let it do things in your mouth, dance around and all that stuff. And uh, I sound like I'm doing an ad for cherry pie. But <coughs> the, uh, there are times where in Scripture where you take some part and it just needs to dance around and, and ruminate and just breathe around you. And then there are other times where you just sort of feast <coughs> where you uh, take you know, larger portions. Well, tonight is going to be the all-you-can-eat Brazilian buffet of Second Corinthians. So uh, I'm asking you to fasten your seatbelts. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Let's get one right to you. And my goal tonight, because, I mean, First Corinthians is so organized. I mean, I think, you know, Paul is responding to some concerns he has. He's answering questions. So the whole thing is very, very organized. First six chapters, he's addressing three primary symptoms that all lead to the same conclusion. The church is carnal. For which then Paul says, oh, y'all, carnal, what's wrong here? And, you know, you, you need to be more like Jesus and not like the world. And then from chapter 7 on in 1 Corinthians, he goes, now concerning the things you wrote to me. So he's answering questions. You know, m- you know it's sort of like marrying meat, giving idols, men and women in service, spiritual gifts, the area of love in chapter 13, 14, how it's practiced in church, chapter 15, the issue of the resurrection and giving, and then finally goodbye. That's sort of the entire book. Of First Corinthians, Second Corinthians is a little bit more like a teen girl, and I don't mean that in any super mean way or any mean way, to be honest. But I mean it, it can, tends to hop around a little bit more. It's a bit more of a jackrabbit because it's so emotional, and, and because it is so emotional, there are definitely key themes, and, and certainly primary is is that this group of people, after Paul's letter of correction, uh, it, you know, sort of said, "Well, who does this guy think he is?" And he kind of pulled a Stephen Fry, and they just kind of and he just flipped out. And, and with that, his, his response, to be honest, was something of great pain. He, he felt real pain to these people. And part of it is that Paul had intended to come back to the church. And as he had intended to go back to the church, he hears that the church really isn't in a real great... He's not, con, he's not convinced that the church is in a condition that they would receive him well. And so Paul kind of stops heading there, and he, and he heads out instead. Uh, and he heads back towards... Uh, towards east and then so the, the point of it is is that because paul said he was coming and then he chose not to it really helped these people that were trying to they were anti-paul people kind of get a little bit of traction and they were like well paul obviously doesn't keep his word you know i thought this guy was supposed to be something super great and of course their whole thing is they're kind of a a, a prosperity doctrine group of people they were judaizers in regards to their practices and they were completely observing things from the outside. And for that, Paul, it's one thing when Paul sees as a pastor, you know, a church that he birthed in one way or another, had, had a part of, uh, move away from the truth. Which, truth be told, could be a lot of what's said of the church of Galatia. And there's another thing when the church totally turns on Paul and does this, who do you think you are, pal, thing. And Paul is really hurt by that. So there's Pastor Paul correcting the doctrinal issue, but there's the person, Paul, that's really hurt. 
And so we kind of go through these certain things, and we'll certainly see throughout the entire book this key theme of this opposition, this external, you know, kind of this external religion where everything's sort of on the surface, and the real religion of following Jesus like we should that Paul demonstrates. We'll see that Paul had made a couple judgments in the first part, in the first letter, in regards to a guy that was having sex with his mother or, or stepmother. It's his father's wife. You can make your own decisions on where that goes. But Paul says the problem isn't just that this guy was doing this, but the church was applauding their tolerance in a society of Corinth, which, of course, we're very much under that kind of influence here. Paul says you need to be intolerant. The ironic, ironic thing is that the people were tolerating sin that destroyed their walks with Christ, but they were intolerant of personalities that weren't. And that's, of course, what happens when you get carnal. And all that carnal means, and let me just make that really clear, all carnal means is flesh nature. And the best way to define flesh nature is you first. The moment you put you first, you're walking in the flesh. The moment you put Christ first and you last, which, by the way, God's Holy Spirit has to do, because you really can't do that naturally, you're going to be spirit-led. And so what I'm going to attempt to do today, uh, this evening, is to go through the entire book. Because we've kind of chiseled off these trees one at a time here to look at them, I want us to get, again, the feel of the entire letter. It's 13 chapters, so you better get ready for this. But the goal is, is that we're going to pick out major points, of course, in the chapters to kind of get the flow of it. And again, I, I really do feel like if you're, if you're reading it with me the way that we'll read it, uh, I think that we're going to kind of get a lot of this real, you know, this brokenness that Paul is experiencing and his concern for these people. Well, when Paul actually said, you need to kick that guy out of the church, he didn't do it for the purpose of saying what you really need to do is just abandon that guy. That guy had already abandoned the Lord. He had abandoned Scripture. He had abandoned the standard. And so the idea of it was, kick, if, if he wants to play that kind of game, let him just go and have as much of it as he wants. But when he's done with all that, he realizes how stupid and empty it is. Let him come back. By this letter, it's clear he's come back. We'll see that in the first two chapters. For which then he gives the counsel, well, now you need to actually comfort him, reassure your love for him at this point, I mean, there are certain things, and forgive him, you need to really make sure that this guy knows he's welcome back as long as he doesn't continue in that lifestyle. Now, that kind of strong disciplinary action could always divide a church. It shouldn't, if the Scripture is what is the deciding element in it, if the Scripture is the standard. But there will always be that. People don't have a problem with a leader as long as the leader gives you good stuff. It's when he has the discipline that nobody likes him. And part of being a pastor is having to step in and do those, make those hard choices. So I want us to pray. And we may go through 13 chapters. We finished off at the second to last chapter halfway through. So we can pick up when we kind of get to that point. We can slow down for a second to just kind of cover it. But really, he's kind of wrapping things up. So I don't want us to develop something too much that hasn't already been developed where I want us to make sure that we get the whole broad picture to see how this thing fits in. So pray with me, would you please? <clears throat> Lord, thank you so much for your word. In this time now that you've given us to take this, this beautiful walk through 2 Corinthians, give us 
this supernatural ability to retain unimaginable amounts of information, but good information, that, that, to, be, uh, to allow ourselves, Lord, supernaturally, to be supernaturally attentive through 13 chapters of Scripture that are pithy and emotional and broken in the sense of the person who's writing this, moved by your Holy Spirit, inspired, Lord, this word is breathed by you. And I, and I just pray, God, that as we go through the forest now, that we would really hear you. And as we hear you, Lord, that, that we would really allow you to make the changes in our own hearts and lives, and that you would make us the kind of church, Lord, that you would be proud of. So, Lord, as you know how quick I could go in something like this, I pray, Lord, that you would actually do something beautiful here. And give us all the ability to keep up and amaze us, Lord, how you walk us through this with such clarity. Jesus, in your name, amen. I would say, like, I would any, please don't just believe me, don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scripture, you're going to see a lot of it tonight. So read along with me, starting in verse 1 of chapter 1. And I will read quickly, so forgive me for that, but I want to make sure we get it. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in all Achaia, that's Greece, as we know it today, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. First simple point, that Paul is not writing this alone. In fact, I challenge you to search the letters that Paul writes and see how many of me actually writes alone. Here we see Paul and Timothy. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, which will be our primary theme in these first few chapters, and then some, who comforts us all in our tribulation that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with, we, with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Don't miss him telling us that his sufferings are not without comfort. If we're afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings, which we also suffer. Or if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. So whether they're afflicted or whether they receive comfort, it's for the same purpose, consolation and salvation. And our hope for you is steadfast because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so also you will partake of the consolation. They actually got hand in hand in Christ. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of the trouble with which, we came, which came to us in Asia. He speaks, by the way, of Ephesians 19 when he was in Ephesus, when we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us, in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. You also helping together in prayer for us that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. For our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity, in godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom. And notice the comparison, because he's already sticking in his jabs for this group of people. We were simple. We were sincere. We didn't play on men's fleshly wisdom, but we, played, we lived this by the grace of God and more abundantly toward you. That will be the key in all of this. For we're not writing any other thing to you than what you, you, know, than what you read or read or understand. Now I trust that you will understand even to the end. 
as also you have understood us in part, that we are your boast, even as you are ours also, in the day of the Lord Jesus. And this is the confidence. I intended to come to you before, that I might have a second benefit. There's Paul, again, making clear he had intended to go. To pass by way of you to Macedonia, to come again to Macedonia to you, and be helped by you on my way to Judea. One of the things he wanted to do was pick up actually some support. Therefore, when I was planning to do this, did I do it lightly? Or the things that I planned, do I plan according to the flesh, that with me there should be yes, yes, and no, no? And the idea of it is, well, when I said yes, did I actually mean no? But as God is faithful, our word to you was not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, Salvatus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him was yes. For all the promises of God in him are yes and in him amen. In other words, if God says that he's going to do it, to the glory of God through us. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God, who has also sealed us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Now moreover, I call God as witness against my soul that to spare you I came no more to Corinth. Not that we have dominion over your faith, but we're fellow workers for your joy, for by faith you stand. But I determined this within myself, that I would not come again to you in sorrow. For if I made you sorrowful, then who is he who makes me glad but the one who was made sorrowful by me? No, here's our key point. Paul says, hey, Paul and Timothy, or Paul and Timothy we're writing to you guys, I had intended to come. And you know I intended to come. And I had intended to come with the hope that because you had already set something aside to help support, we were going to come and get that. But then when I saw that you guys weren't in a condition for that, the last thing I wanted to do was come and make a collection from you guys when you guys were clearly not in a position to do that. So I didn't want to go there and be totally bummed out. I wanted to go there and enjoy you. So I didn't go when I would have gone. But I determined this instead, that I wouldn't come at this point. I'd rather come under better terms. So verse 3 says, So I wrote this very thing, lest when I come, you should have sorrow over those whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in you that all my joy is the joy of you all. Now out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you, it was not pleasant for me to write this kind of letter. With many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love of which I have so abundantly for you. But if anyone has caused grief, well, he's not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, but not too severe. This punishment, which was afflicted by the majority, was sufficient. Now he's talking about that guy they kicked out. And now has come back for such a man. So that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps one be swallowed up by too much sorrow. Therefore I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. Now that the guy has repented and come back, welcome him. Go out of your way to welcome him back. For to this end I also wrote that I might put you to test whether you're obedient in all things. Now which one of you wants to get a letter from Paul and actually I'm say it's your job to kick him out of the church right now? Now whom you forgive, anything I also forgive. For if indeed I've forgiven anything, I have forgiven the one for your sakes in the presence of Christ, lest Satan should take advantage of us. We're not ignorant of his devices. Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel and a door was opened to me by the Lord, excuse me, I had no rest in my spirit because I didn't find Titus, my brother. But taking leave of them, I departed from Macedonia. Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ as through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved 
and among those who are being perishing, and those who are perishing. To the one, the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. Who is sufficient for these things? And notice the jab he throws in here. For we are not as so many peddling the word of God, but notice again out of sincerity, but as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. So listen. Hi, guys. I really wanted to come, but we were not in the best place for that to happen. And when I wrote to you, I didn't write to you with some kind of proud attitude. I wrote to you with a broken heart to see how you responded to this. I know that it's hard to obey something where you have to actually deal with somebody punitively. I recognize that. But it gave you the opportunity to do what real obedience looks like. And by the way, real submission isn't submission until you disagree. And I really wanted to see you do what was right. Hey, when I wrote this, I was, I was crying when I wrote this because it hurt me so bad to see what was going on here. But you did it. Well, some of you did. And now the guy is back and he wants to be restored. Oh, restore the guy now. I mean, if you've forgiven him, then let's forgive him and let's move forward with the guy. But I want you to know, these things that these others, because this backlash, what happened as a result of this, these people that rose up to become crazy against me now, we're not like them, trying to do everything for profit. And the idea of peddling the word, you probably know what that means. That means we're not trying to do this for selling anything. We're not selling anything for this. And notice how that leads into chapter 3. Do we again begin to commend ourselves? Do we need as some others, notice again our jab, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? Clearly the response from the Corinthian church is, Paul, where are your credentials? This other group of people that seem to have a problem with you, we're going to call them the problem boys. Problem boys have risen up and said, you know, they seem to have credentials. They have their letters of ordination. Now, granted, they started their own institution, so they ordained each other. And, of course, because they hate you, they're not going to ordain you. But now look at how they're experts. Do you know how easy it is to set up your own little thing, call yourself an expert, and then have other people just sort of submit to you? Because, after all, your club said. Do you remember that from secondary school? Some of you, you probably have painful memories from primary school where there was the in crowd and they made their own rules and if they didn't want you in, it didn't matter what the rules were. You weren't getting in. Paul goes, do I have to, do I have to play this game? You of all people? You're asking, where's my letters of ordination? Where, are, where is my doctorate in divinity? You're asking, what seminary did I graduate from? Because somehow you're questioning whether I have any right to minister? I could get that if it was a church like Colossae because Colossae had never met Paul. You guys didn't know Jesus before I got there. And how do you say that without sounding like you're promoting yourself? You know what I mean? Paul is dumbfounded. And so he says in verse 2, you are our epistle written on our hearts. You want to know what it is, what letters that we need? You guys are the living letters of this. You are proof of the ministry. Known and read by all men. Clearly you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone or of tablets of flesh, because in those days they wrote on animal skins. It was called membranas. That is of the heart. 
but on tablets of flesh. God has written it on your heart. Now, Anne is... And we have such trust through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think that anything is from ourselves. Our sufficiency is from God, who made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now he's going to compare the two ministries. Now he's comparing it first from the idea of the Judaizers, adding, trying to put you under their sort of tradition. And some of you know you've come from traditional backgrounds. All of a sudden, this movement happens. Imagine if a movement were to happen in Russia or in Greece or someplace where there is a strong Orthodox background and how the, the church would either oppose it that's there or they would have to try to figure out how to make it Orthodox now. Well, and that's what this group of people were doing. They were just trying to put it under their Orthodoxy. So he calls it the ministry of death versus the ministry of life, verse 7. But if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones was glorious so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, the glory which was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of the condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory which excels. For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is even more glorious. He doesn't take away the fact that there was glory in the Ten Commandments, but there was glory in the Mosaic Law. It just is nothing in comparison to the ministry of the Spirit. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away, but their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament, some people say, how do you get the words Old Testament? I'd say, well, it's here in the New Testament, right here, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 14, because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day when Moses is read, the veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same Spirit from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Now hear me. Paul makes clear, if you're speaking Jesus to someone and you want to try to use Scripture, you're speaking to somebody that's veiled. And until they trust in the Gospel of Jesus Christ, Scripture will not make sense to them. I mean, think about it. You've accepted the gift of Jesus Christ. And the moment you did, according to Ephesians 1, God's Spirit sits in you, lives in you. And you still don't get everything. I don't get everything. How much more a person who doesn't have the author inside? And Paul says, look at the difference. They're trying to make this whole thing about the 600 plus different commandments, 623 commandments that are in the Torah. And yet, they're not even taking the most important, which was just accepting Jesus as their Lord and Savior. So by the time he gets to chapter 4, now that he's compared the idea of the ministry of the Spirit and accepting the gift of Jesus and the ministry of trying to do it by works, now he actually starts stepping into the ring and he starts going for the throat. Therefore, since we have this ministry, the ministry of life, the ministry of the Spirit, the enduring, more glorious ministry, as we have received mercy, we don't lose heart. But we have, notice, 
We've renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully. You get the jabs that are coming out? But the, by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age is blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. We don't preach ourselves, of course, assuming the other guys were, and we'll see that later. But Christ Jesus, the Lord, and ourselves, your bondservants for Jesus' sake. This isn't about lifting us up. This isn't about being superstars. It's about being servants. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who shone in our hearts to give light to the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earth and vessels, that the excellence of the power may be in God, or of God, not of us. Earthen treasures, or earthen vessels, by the way, is just a clay pot. It's a very ordinary, unimpressive thing to look at. And he says, what makes it valuable is not the outer shell, which is the fundamental part of this. These guys are spending so much time looking at the surface. And I'm never going to, I'm never going to own, I'm never going to add up there, measure up there. But the treasure is what we contain. What we contain, not the outer shell. But verse 8, we're hard-pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not in despair. We are persecuted, true, but not forsaken. Struck down, sure, but not destroyed. Always caring about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus might be manifest in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our mortal flesh. So then, death is working in us, but life in you. And since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed, therefore I spoke, that Psalm 116.10, he quotes. We also believe and therefore speak, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with him. For all things are for your sakes, that, that grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving and abound, or to abound, the glory of God. Now, please hear me, because all of a sudden he'll really go after this outer shell thing here in a moment. I get the idea that these people who were standing against Paul were saying, yeah, look at how they're hard-pressed. Look at how they're perplexed. Look at how they're persecuted. Look at how they're struck down. And he goes, yeah, 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 we're hard-pressed, but we're not crushed. And we almost, like the people who gravitate to this text, almost are the ones that tend to be the ones who are like, Quick to sing, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Like they, they're so quick to like say, oh, woe is me. You know, it's like they miss the bus and they read Job and they like, I just, I feel exactly what Job was feeling. No, you don't. Job lost everything. He didn't miss a bus. And people go, oh, well, let me just tell you, we're hard pressed. On every side, we're crushed, and we're perplexed, and we're persecuted. And people like grab a hold of this thing. And really, all that really happened, to be honest, was maybe they tried to put up a flyer somewhere, and someone said, no. Oh, I'm hard-pressed. Oh, my persecuted. Oh, my life's pretty rough. I went in after three times, and I went into that Starbucks. They still didn't know my name, and I'm sure it's because I had a Bible in my backpack, though people couldn't see it. I know they did. They knew it. But what Paul is actually doing is he's saying, yeah, so what? That's what he's saying. The funny part is the people who would actually take, that would gravitate to this text, Paul would actually take them outside and beat the heck out of them. He'd be like, you want to feel hard-pressed? I'll show you hard-pressed. 
You want to be struck down? I'll show you struck down. And the point is, is that these people were making fun of Paul because Paul's life was rough. Paul's like, you know what? So they say hard-pressed. On every side, I'll tell you what, we're not crushed. And as much as the enemy, and I'll put it this way, the enemy's tried to press us on every side, but he never, he can't crush us. He's tried to totally perplex us, like in other words, where we're so confused and overwhelmed, but I'm not despaired here. We may be persecuted, but we're never forsaken. He tried to strike us down, but we can't be destroyed by him. And that's the point here. So he says then in verse 16, Therefore, we're not going to lose heart. How could we lose heart? No matter what the enemy throws at us, he can't win. I mean, I, come, I may come out of this with some bumps and bruises, but he can't win. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day for our light affliction. Get that. So imagine coming to Paul and trying to sing that nobody knows song because he missed the bus. And Paul said, the stuff I experienced was light affliction. And he's like carrying his arm in a sling. And that was a good day. But our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working in us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. This is why we don't look at the things which are seen. We look at the things that are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary. But the things which are not seen are eternal. And then he talks about the temporary, our earthly house. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent, that's our earthly bodies, we groan being burdened. And the older you get, some of you all know, groaning becomes a part of life. Now, in the beginning, that doesn't happen. The only groaning a youngin does, I'm getting to the age where I can call someone else a youngin, the only groaning they do is they groan because they hear older people groan. They're like, ah, there they go groaning. And I'm like, don't worry, you'll be groaning sooner or later. And you know, first it's getting up. You're sitting there, and you, there's a part of you that has to tell your body we're getting up now. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Remember when you could just kind of pop down, kneel, you know, sort of sit down for a moment on your heels and kind of get something and then pop right back up. And now you're like, all right, we're going to go. And you go, right, and then you make a little bit of noise. Some of you are young and making those noises. I've heard you. And then as you get a little bit older, you start making noises, noises on the way down. It's like the hydraulics start leaking. You're like, all right, okay. And you're saying, all right, body, I just want you to know you're going to get a little time off now. I hear people do that on an escalator. They're like, ah. Oh. And it's like, you know, they get to Angel Station. You know, it's that really long escalator. They're like, yes. Stairs, take me up. He's like, you know, we groan. Do you know why we groan? Because God made this thing temporary so you wouldn't call it home. So when God says, I've got heaven for you, you don't go, yeah, can I stay here a little longer? He says this, verse 4, For we were in this tent grown, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has also given us his spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord. That's why God doesn't want you to be at home in the body. Because why would he want you to be at home in a place that's absent from him personally? 
Because we walk by faith, not by sight. And notice again that little jab at the outer appearance thing again. We are confident, yes, well pleased rather, to be absent of the body is to be present with the Lord. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to Him. Because we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, may also trust are well known in your own consciences as well. Look at verse 12 now. He sort of sets it up. In other words, if you actually watch a good fighter often, and not like I recommend you going watching fighting, often one of the things you can learn with some people is they, their footing is everything. Their footing tells you exactly what's going to happen next. Well, he just got his footing so we can throw some jabs. Look at verse 12. We don't commend ourselves again to you, but give an opportunity to boast on our behalf that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance not in heart. In other words, he goes, I'd rather equip you to nail these guys yourself. If we're crazy beside ourselves, it's for God. If we're actually sane, of sound mind, it's for you. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus, that if one died for all, well, then all died. And if he died for all, then those who live should live no longer for themselves. I'm trying to equip you to deal with these guys. When Christ died... He told us it's no longer time to live for yourself, but for him who died and rose again, died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. So I just want you to know that these people who are doing everything by outer appearance, we completely have taken our stand against this. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. So stop looking at the old stuff. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing the trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we're ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we employ you on Christ's behalf. And now it's the, the call out to these people, would you please be reconciled to God because know it or not, if you're going to follow these people, <coughs> you're going to take sides against God to do it. For he made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We then as workers together with him, then we're pleading with you as this as well. Don't receive the grace of God in vain. Please be reconciled to him, you guys. Please get right with the Lord. Your battle is not with me. Your battle is not that group of people versus this group of people, that denomination versus this denomination. The issue is be reconciled to the Lord and don't receive His grace in vain. For in an acceptable time, and in the day of salvation, I have helped you, which, by the way, is Isaiah 49.8. Now, behold, now is the accepted time. When he says an acceptable time, now is the day of salvation, what he meant by that was now. So do it now. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. And we give no offense to anything that our ministry may not be blamed. But in all things, we commend ourselves as ministers of God in this. Much patience, tribulations, needs and in distresses and stripes and imprisonments and tumults and labors and sleeplessness and in fastings. That's what it looks like for us. 
purity and knowledge and long-suffering, by, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and the left, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers, that's what they're calling us, but yet we're telling the truth, <coughs> as unknown, like, oh, look at these nobodies, and yet we're well-known as dying, and yet look at how we live. And say, well, look at how they're dying. I imagine that whatever Paul's illnesses were made people look and go, how could you follow this guy? How could God possibly be blessing him? Look at how his body's falling apart. How could that be the blessing of God? But if you, Paul says, if you spend three hours with me, you'll see how alive I really am. I'd hate to think that my life is directly related to how healthy I am. I, I recommend be as healthy as you can. But be spiritually healthy first and foremost. It tells us physical exercise is of some value, of little profit. Oh, but godliness with contentedness, that's great gain. As chastened, yeah, and we're not killed. As sorrowful, but rejoicing. As poor, and yet making many rich. As having nothing. Oh, look, these people are saying, oh, look at how poor they are. And look at how God has blessed us with this beautiful Christian mansion. He says, yet... They say we have nothing, and yet I'll tell you, we have everything. Oh, Corinthians, and here is his heart bleeding on top of him. We've spoken so openly to you. Our heart is wide open. You're not restricted by us, which apparently seems to be the accusation of these people. Look at how restricting Paul is. You're restricted by your own affections. Now, in return for the same, I speak to you as children. Would you please be open with us? And again, he's begging them. Please... Be reconciled to God. Please don't receive the grace of God in vain. And please, would you be open to us? We've done nothing to deserve this. Therefore, listen, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what fellowship is righteousness with lawlessness? What communion is light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? On what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you, as the temple of the, you are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will dwell among them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And that's Leviticus 26, uh, like 12, Jeremiah 32, 38, Ezekiel 37, 27. Therefore, and God then gives this call then, well, would you come out among them, from among them, and be separate, says the Lord? Don't touch what is unclean. And I'll receive you. Isaiah 52, 11, Ezekiel 20, 34, and 20, 41. And, and, and listen, here's his call. Please be reconciled to God. Please don't take God's grace in vain. Would you open up our hearts? And can I say this? Get away from those people. Do you realize that's what Paul's saying here? Come out from them and be separate. He is calling this group of people unbelievers. Have you noticed that? Now, I can't tell you whether these people are believers or unbelievers, but I can tell you there are a couple very proactive, assertive cults with initiative in our city. Certainly there are those that hand out their pamphlets. Most people recognize them as cults, but there's another group that's a lot more sly. And they try to buddy up with you when they find common ground, but the bottom line in this particular group is they start asking questions to sow doubt. Are you really saved? I'm not telling you, have you accepted the gift of Jesus or what Scripture says in Romans 10, 9, and 10? Are you really his disciple? Are you really his disciple? Have you been baptized? 
How have you been baptized? To whom have you been baptized? What you'll find out is this particular group teaches that you're not actually saved unless you're baptized into their church. It's a great question to start with, if you would ask. And well, let's, before, we, before we get any farther, could I be saved without being baptized in your church? Could I be saved without being baptized? Or is it the gift of God, or is this a work of man? But it's so sly and it's so subtle. And can I just say, I hate it. The reason I hate it, I watch how it takes people who are new in Christ, who are in love with Jesus, who are enjoying God's grace and just love being adopted by the Father and get them so confused they feel like orphans. And there they are living in the kingdom and they don't even know it anymore because they've been so danced around. And can I say, come out from them and be separate. That's what Paul says. As he quotes Isaiah 52, Ezekiel 20 and Ezekiel 20, verses 34 and 41. And this is what he says. This is the offer instead from 2 Samuel 7, 14. I'll be a father to you. You'll be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. And that takes us to our halfway mark. Therefore, since that's the promise God's given you, he wants to be your dad. He wants you to be his child. And these people are busy trying to make you their disciples, make you their follower having these promises instead that God's given? Let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Would you please open your hearts to us? Do you see that cry again? We've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've cheated no one, which assumes to be the uh, accusations made by these people. I do not say this to condemn. I've said this before, that, that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Great is my boldness of speech toward you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I'm filled with all comfort. I'm exceedingly joyful in all your tribulation. Indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. We were troubled on every side. Outsides were conflicts. Insides were fears. Nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Remember how Paul had sent Titus? He was so concerned about this church. Paul's like, Titus, you've got to go and find out what's up with them. Where are they at? You know how, and this started, by the way, with public radio, and it went from public radio to the Internet, where a very small group of people can sound like the majority because they just produce things well enough. And now all of a sudden it's like, we speak for everyone, and what happens is in those days you don't have that. So when Paul gets some form of response back, it's hard to tell whether it's the whole church or whether it's a small group of loudmouths. Does that make sense? Well, let's face it, it only takes one person with a problem to change the environment of the entire room. And you know that. You could be on a bus and everything seems to be happy. You're going to your destination. It's warm. It's cold outside. Everything seems to be nice. Nobody smells bad around you. And one person steps in and they're crazy and they're macking nuts all over the place. And they're doing all kinds of weird things. And they're such a nutter. It's like nobody's happy anymore. And one person changed everything. And so what Paul did when he sent Timothy, or Titus is he's like, Titus, I need to know, is this the church that's speaking or is this just a group of people? And Paul said, because of this, I want you to know, I love you guys so much, I couldn't even sleep. I couldn't, I couldn't imagine. And I imagine that Paul could run faces through his, you know, through his mind's eye, if that makes sense. You know, people that he sat and prayed with, 
that were like their marriage was on the brinks or, or was on the brink or like they were in sort of they were they were pregnant and they were drunk and they were wasted and they had a worn out for the rest and all of the things that were going on they were so broken and so desperate and so empty and praying with them and watching them be transformed and he's like God please not them not them how could they flip like that she's like Titus you, you got to tell me go there and find out. I mean, I, I could probably, yeah, maybe that person ever. So now that I think about it, maybe they could be like that. But, but please, not everyone. I couldn't even rest. Verse 6 says, Nevertheless, God who comforts the downcast. Paul was bumming. Comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you. When he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. For, hey, look at, okay, I, if I've made you sorry with my letter, I don't regret it, as though I did regret it. I mean, I, I did in this. I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, but only for a while. Because I rejoice not only that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. The issue was, I didn't, my end, the end of this was not to make you sorry. The end of this was to make you change. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. And he compares the two kinds of sorrow. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of this world produces death. For observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourselves. What indignation. What fear. What vehement desire. What zeal. What vindication. In all things you proved yourself to be clear in this matter. Therefore, although I wrote to you and I... I didn't do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong, not for the sake of him who suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. I want you to know I wrote this because I love you. Therefore, we've been comforted in your comfort. The comfort you gave to Titus, he's given to us. And we rejoice exceedingly more for the joy of Titus because his spirit was refreshed by you all. For if in anything I've boasted to him about you, I'm not ashamed. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, even so our boasting to Titus was found true. And his affections are greater for you as he remembers the obedience of you all, how with fear and trembling you received him. Well, therefore I rejoice that I have confidence in you in everything. I, I told Titus how amazing you guys were and I really was hoping that it would be the case. And you lived right up to every bit of it. So the next couple chapters, he says, remember how you guys were going to give? But I didn't come because things were kind of weird between us. Well, now that things seem right, let's collect. But the collection wasn't for Paul. Now the collection is to make sure that the money goes to the ailing church in Judea who's suffering a famine. Moreover then, brothers, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia that in great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, even beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us, with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. It's always the way that giving should always be. You give yourself to the Lord and then you just say, it's all yours, Lord. Do what you want. So we urged also Titus that as he had begun, so we would also complete this grace in you as well. But as you abound in everything, in faith and in speech and knowledge, diligence, and in all of your love for us, We'll see that you abound in this grace also. I speak not by commandment. I'm not telling you this is the commandment. 
but I'm testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the example we're looking at. That though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. That you through his poverty might become rich. And in this I give advice. It is to your advantage not only to be doing what you began and were desiring to do a year ago, but now you also also complete the doing of it. That there may be a readiness to desire it, so there also may be a completion out of what you, what you have. For if there was a first a willing mind, it is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what he doesn't have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but by an equality that now at this time your abundance may supply their lack, that their abundance also may supply your lack, that there may be equality as it is written, well, he who gathered had nothing left over and he who gathered little, he who gathered much had nothing left over and he who gathered little had no lack. That's Exodus 16, verse 18, speaking, of course, about the manna God provided. But thanks be to God who puts the same earnest desire for you in the heart of Titus. For he not only accepted the exhortation, but being more diligent, he went to you in his own, of his own accord. And as we have sent with him the brother whose praise is in the gospel throughout all of the churches. And not only that, but was also chosen by the churches to travel with us with this gift. Hey, they picked another guy to go with to make sure it all got there. Be my guest. That was awesome. Which is administered by us to the glory of the Lord himself and to show a ready mind, avoiding this, that anyone should blame us in this lavish gift that has been administered by us, providing honorable things, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. And we have sent with him then our brother, whom we have often proved diligent in many things, speaking, of course, Titus, because of the great confidence with which we have in you. If anyone inquires about Titus, he's my partner, my fellow worker concerning you. Or if our brethren are inquired about, they're messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. Therefore, show to them and before the churches the proof of your love and of your boasting on our behalf. Now, concerning the ministering of the saints, it's superfluous for me to write to you. I don't even have to do this. You know, for I know your willingness about which I boast of you to the Macedonians that Achaia was ready a year ago and your zeal was stirred up the majority. You guys were so excited a year ago, all of Greece wanted to give. You were the ones who started that beautiful fire. Yet I have sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this respect, that, as I said, you may be ready. Lest if some Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to mention you, should be ashamed of this confident boasting. Well, therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time. That's the idea. He sent Titus and he sent these other guys. He's like, those guys are there saying, hey, Paul's coming. Well, let's get this thing ready before you get there, before he gets here, so that there's no weirdness when he shows up. So I sent the brethren ahead to go to you ahead of time to prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised that it may be ready as a matter of generosity, not as a grudging obligation. And here's the basis for all giving. Verse 6. And more, poor, more specifically as well, verse 7. But this I say, he was so sparingly, well, he'll reap sparingly. That makes sense. If you throw a little seed on the ground, don't expect a huge harvest. <coughs> but he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Listen, here's the point. Let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity. There's your three points. Give as God speaks to you. Don't give out of like, fine and okay. If you're a parent, you know how little of a victory that is of any. 
and not because you, someone told you you had to. Because God loves a cheerful giver. And the Greek word for cheerful, I love it, is elarius. And guess what word we get from it? And God is able to make all grace abound toward you that you, having always the sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. As it is written, he has dispersed abroad, has given to the poor, and his righteousness endures forever. Psalm 112.9. Now, may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, supply and multiply the seed which you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. While you are enriched in everything for all liberality, which causes thanksgiving through us to God. For the administration of the service not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also is abounding through many thanksgiving to God. While through the proof of this ministry, they glorify God for the obedience of your concession to the gospel of Christ. And for your liberal sharing with them in all men, and by their prayers for you, who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his undescribable gift. And before we get through our last couple chapters, let me just say this. My dad was a baseball player. He was raised around baseball and other sports as well. And they had this thing called the seventh inning stretch. They realized you could watch something for a period of time, and after a while, things start to fall asleep. So this is what I thought we'd do before we go through our last couple chapters. Let's do a seventh inning stretch. Why don't you stand with me for a moment, and we're going to pray, and then we'll dig into our last handful of chapters. Will you do that with me? Come on, stand. Oh, yeah. We're about 15 minutes away from the entirety of this. But I know at this point, probably most of you are like, uh, I've just turned into jelly. So here we go. Pray with me, would you? Lord, now as we go in for dessert, Lord, speak to us through the rest of this book, but give us supernatural ability to understand by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, minister to us now in the final portion of this. Lord, thank you for the blessing of being able to follow you. Thank you, Lord, that Paul was human, and I understand he, he hurts as he loves people. Make us people who love people, Lord, who follow, Lord, your footsteps, your example, that though you are rich, you became poor so that we could become rich. That's the whole point, Lord. It's not about us anymore. So, Lord, as you lead us in this now, Lord, give us the ability to hear you. Jesus, in your name, amen. Okay, you can be seated if you like. We'll finish. Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you. Notice again he's begging. By the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in the presence am lowly among you, but in absent, being absent and bold toward you. Obviously, when you look at me, I'm not the same guy that you get in the letters. In this sense. <coughs> that I look a lot less threatening in person. But I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with the confidence by which I intend to be bold against some. And here he is, he's going, I don't want to have to come in and start rolling heads for these jerks who are saying this stuff. Who think as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we don't war in the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your, diso- when your, I'm sorry, when your obedience is fulfilled. So notice how he brings the point here of that outer appearance again. Do you look at things according to the outward appearance? If anyone has convinced himself that he is Christ, well then let him again consider this in himself, that just as he is Christ, even so we are Christ's, 
For even if I should boast somewhat more about our authority, which the Lord gave us for edification, not for your destruction, I'm not going to be ashamed, lest I should seem to terrify you by letters. And notice he's quoting them now. For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. Well, let such a person consider this. That what we are in word by letters, when we are absent, such we will also be indeed when we're present. Do you get the threat there? Paul's like, they're saying that he's really not threatening in person, but his letters are tough. He's like, yeah, well, they better change because if not, they're going to get the letter of Paul when I show up. You really want that? You want a piece of this? And I get the idea. Paul is like, it's the emotion storm. You know, there's anger, there's hurt. Man, I don't want to have to come in that way. For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves to those who commend themselves. But they, measuring themselves by themselves, comparing themselves among themselves, they're not wise. They created their own little world. They ordained each other. And now look at how they are the experts among their own little circle. We, however, will not boast beyond measure, but within the limits of the sphere which God appointed us, a sphere which especially includes you, by the way, for we are not overextending ourselves as though our authority didn't extend to you. For it was to you that we came with the gospel of Christ, not boasting of things beyond measure, that is of another man's labors, but having hope that our faith, as your faith is increased, we shall be greatly enlarged by you in our sphere. To preach the gospel in the regions beyond you and not to boast in another man's sphere of accomplishment. These people have jumped in on my work. I was like, this, you guys, you are my ministry. And these people are jumping in. It's like, look at, like, we have no say in this matter. This whole thing started with us together. But he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Jeremiah 9, 24. For not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. Oh, that you would bear with me a little folly. Indeed, you do bear with me. I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I've betrothed you to one husband, and I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear lest somehow... As the serpent deceived Eve in his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Remember Paul said, we've conducted ourselves with simplicity and sincerity. He goes, you know, I'm concerned that you guys have been led away from that, sin- that simplicity, just like Eve was by the serpent. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we've not preached, or if we receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel with which you have not accepted, oh, you'll well put up with it. For I consider that I'm not at all inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I'm untrained in speech. Yeah, okay, I'll grant you that, but I'm not in knowledge. But we have been thoroughly manifested among you in all things. Did I commit sin in humbling myself that that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches taking wages from them to minister to you. And when I was present with you and in need, I never asked you. I was a burden to no one. For what I lacked, the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied. And in everything, I kept myself from being, a, being burdensome to you, so that I will keep myself. As the truth of Christ is in me, no one will stop me from boasting in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I don't love you? Oh, God knows. I love you. And I was not going to put you in a position where you felt like you had to pay for this. But what I do, I will also continue to do. Then I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire the opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things in which they boast. Those are false apostles. Paul is not having a problem telling you what they are, huh? Deceitful workers, 
transforming themselves into apostles of Christ, then no wonder, just like their leader, they're acting just like their boss, Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it should be no great thing that his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. Now I say again, let no one think me a fool. If otherwise, then they'll receive me as a fool, that I may boast a little. What I speak, I speak not according to the Lord, as it were, foolishly, rather in the confidence of boasting. Seeing that many boast according to the flesh, well, then I guess I'll do the same thing. And you can see at this point, Paul's loosening up a little here in a dangerous way. For you put up with fools gladly, since you guys are so wise. For if you put up with one who brings you into bondage or devours you, or takes from you or exalts himself or strikes you on the face, to our shame I say that we were too weak for that. But in whatever anyone is bold, I speak foolishly, well, then I'll be bold too. Are they Hebrews? Well, then so am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they the ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I'm even more so. Labor is more abundant, stripes above measure, prisons more frequently, deaths often. <clears throat> From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I've been in the deep. Journeys often, perils of water, perils of robbers, perils of my own countrymen, perils of the Gentiles, the perils in the city, perils in the wilderness, perils in the sea, perils among false brethren, weariness and toil and sleeplessness often, and hunger and thirsting and fastings often, and cold and nakedness, and beside all these other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Hey, who is weak that I'm not weak? Who has made this stumble that I did not burn if I must boast? I'll boast in the things which concern my infirmity. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, ble- who is blessed forever, and he knows I'm not lying. In Damascus, the governor over, under Aretas, the king, who was guarding the city in Damascus, with a garrison desiring to arrest me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands. Paul's like, hey, you, you wanna, you, <clears throat> what you really need is somebody that talks about himself? Well, then I'll tell you about myself. It's doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I'll come to visions and revelations of the Lord. And I, I could see him like kind of debating on whether he really wants to let people know he got this vision or someone else. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I don't know, or whether out of the body I don't know, God knows. Such a one was caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, God knows. He was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which are not lawful for a man to utter, of such a one I will boast, yet not of myself. I won't boast. I won't, of myself I won't boast except in my infirmity. For though I desire, I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will speak the truth. But I refrain lest anyone should think me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations a thorn in the flesh was given me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And you know what he said? He said, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. These guys, by the way, are so busy trying to be strong in their own way, they'll never see God's strength because it's in our own weakness that God shows us. Therefore, Most gladly I will boast in my infirmities, that the power of Christ might rest upon me. Therefore I take pleasure in my infirmities, in reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. Do you know why? Because when I'm weak, I'm strong. I've become a fool 
You've compelled me. I ought to have been commended by you. Why did I have to boast? You should be the one talking about me. For I'm nothing. I was behind the most eminent apostles. Though I'm nothing, truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance and signs and wonders and mighty deeds. But what is it in which you were inferior to any other church except that I myself was not burdensome to you? Oh, forgive me this wrong. And this is where we left. This is the third time I'm ready to come to you. And it will not be burdensome to you. I don't seek yours. I seek you. For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. And I will very gladly be spent for your souls. For the more abundantly I love you, the less I'm loved. Be it as it may, I will not be a burden to you. Nevertheless, being crafty, I caught you by cunning. Did I take advantage of you by any of these things and by any of those whom I sent to you? I urge Titus and sent our brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not walk in the same spirit? Did we not walk in the same steps? Again, do you think that we excuse ourselves to you? We speak before God in Christ. We do all things, beloved, for your edification. But I fear. For I fear lest when I come, I shall not find you as such as I wish. And that I shall be found by you such as I don't wish. Lest... There'll be contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, backbiting, whispering, conceits, tumults, the very things I said that were the problems when you started. Thus, when I come again, my God will humble me among you, and I shall mourn for many who have sinned before and have not repented of the uncleanness, fornication, and lewdness in which they've practiced. Well, this will be the third time I'm coming to you, but by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word will be established. Of course, Paul's quoting from Deuteronomy 19.15. I, I have told you before and foretell as if it were present the second time. And now being absent, I write to those who have sinned before and to the rest that if I come again, I will not spare. Since you seek proof of Christ speaking in me, who is not weak toward me, but mighty in you. You want to see Christ's power? Watch what happens when I show up if they're still there and acting like that. For though he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God for so we are weak in Him, but we shall live with Him by the power of God toward you. We'll examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless you're disqualified. Indeed. But I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. Now I pray to God that you do no evil. Not that we should appear approved, but that you should do what's honorable. Oh, then we may seem disqualified from these outer appearance things that they've created. For we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. For we are glad that when we are weak and you are strong, and this we also we pray, this also we pray that you may be made complete. Therefore, I write these things being absent, lest being present I should use sharpness. I'd rather write it in the letter and let you get it right before I get there so that we don't have to do this face to face. That's what he's saying. According to the authority which the Lord has given me for edification and not for destruction. And finally, brothers, farewell. Become complete. Complete, this perfect or complete, this is taking something to its proper end. You guys are not there yet. Keep moving forward, beloved. That's the idea. And be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. 
greet one another with a holy kiss. In those days, that's how family greeted each other. Now, family doesn't greet each other in most cultures today with a kiss. But the idea is if you're going to call each other family, treat each other like good family. All the saints here greet you. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Did you notice in the last verse the Trinity? We have the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit. Can I say the whole book wraps up into those things as we get ready to pray? Would you believe you made it? Jesus offers grace. It's the gift of Jesus that was given by the love of the Father so that we could have communion that has been led by the Holy Spirit. And so let me say it this way as we bring this to close. Here's a man that was a Christian hater. Here's a man that had given his entire life over to destroy Christianity who met Jesus. He was trying to earn his way out of his own sins and that was never going to work. But he saw and recognized the gift, the grace that is only offered through Jesus Christ. Nobody else offers you that grace. Nobody else can die for you because they have their own sins to pay for. But God made him, as we read here, who had no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God through him or in him. And it starts with this. Your God, my God, the God, made us. And he made us with a will so that love could be love because love isn't love without a will. Because love isn't love without a choice. He made the choice to pursue us, giving us the choice to say no. And when we went our own way, God chased us anyways. He could have said deals off, but he didn't. And out of love, the Father's love, the gift of Jesus is given. On the cross, dying for us, raising again. As we see that we should no longer live to ourselves. We've been bought. It's the gift of Christ. And it's the Holy Spirit in His ministry is communion. It is the compelling in your heart right now that says you need to get this right. Now whether you are one of those people that have been led astray by somebody's fancy talk and their high-priced you know, seminars or whatever, they're beautiful smoke and mirrors or whatever, but you know that Scripture says otherwise? My humble request is, as Paul would say, don't receive the grace of God in vain. Be reconciled to Him tonight. You'd say, yeah, but I saw on the Internet that I could, you know, that I could still do this thing or this thing isn't as bad as Scripture looks. But Scripture says it looks bad because it's bad. Do you want somebody to try to present themselves as an expert so that you can do what you want? Or do you want to submit yourself to a God who actually speaks very clearly? And for that I say, don't receive the grace of God in vain. Be reconciled to God. Come out from them. Be apart from them. And the moment somebody says, well, you know, you just got to chew the meat and spit out the bones. You ever heard that expression? It drives me crazy. 
Usually it's a guy that says he's a prophet that says that. The problem is a false prophet, a false prophecy is not a bone, it's poison. So, make brownies, go outside, find a little bit of dog poop, put it in your brownies, then say, go ahead, just chew the chocolate, just spit out the poop. Sounds gross because it's intended to be. That should be the taste in your mouth when somebody actually tries to lead you astray. Spit out the bone. No, thank you. I'd rather not have a bony food. That's what you want to call it. And Paul says, please, a church, and can I just say this as we bring, please, please hear me, please hear my heart. Surface Christianity will never work. Surface Christianity is the seed that falls but doesn't go deep. So everything's on the surface. Do you remember what it says when Jesus speaks about it in Matthew 13? That when the sun comes and scorches because it has no roots? He says that's persecution because of the word. Surface Christianity will crumble under persecution, especially persecution over the word of God. Surface Christianity will not give, will not serve, unless that investment pays off higher for him right now. Everything is still self-driven. Surface Christianity is not true Christianity. Can you imagine Jesus' surface Christianity? What would that look like? Well, you wouldn't have to die on the cross. Somehow you just kind of sort of think you're going to heaven, and you sort of feel like you're a little cleaner, and he put a paint job on you. Isn't that what he said, by the way, to the religious leaders, that you're whitewashed tombs? Surface looks clean. Inside your dead man's bones. Spit out those bones, Holmes. Because that doesn't work for me. And my prayer is tonight, as we pray, first of all, if you've ever accepted, if, you, if you're not sure if you've accepted that gift of Jesus Christ, well, you need to deal with that first. The love of the Father gave the gift of Jesus and His Holy Spirit is calling you into communion. That's such a beautiful verse to end with. If you have said yes to Jesus, might I say that your prayer, may your prayer be as mine tonight. God, let there be nothing surface Christianity about me. I don't want it to be a mile wide and a half inch thick. I want to go deep so that when the storms come, this thing ain't moving. I stand on your word. And I'm not going to let the next sing-song person and music band with their song, Dance, Smoke, and Mirrors lead me anywhere but into your arms. And if that's not where they're going, then I shouldn't be listening to them anyways. Pray with me, would you please? Lord, thank you so much for this amazing book. And I thank you, Lord, that Paul, we read, is just a real human being, given over to love you and serve you and to serve these people. He can delight. He can grieve. He can feel pain. All of which clearly we see in this letter. And in the same way, Lord, and even more so, you're a God who's not stoic. You feel pain. You grieve. You, you, you suffer. As you see, Lord, your people turn from you to terrible, faulty counterfeits. So I pray for every Christian, including myself, first. Lord, that you take us beyond surface 
that it's not about a quick hand raised or a simple prayer or whatever, Lord, but deep, real, intimate relationship with you. The love of the Father, the gift of the Son, and the communion of the Spirit. God, make that our lives now. As your Holy Spirit convicts us of anything interfering, Lord, exhume and remove permanently that we have communion led by your Spirit. As we look, Lord, at trying to be right with you, we recognize that comes at the gift of your Son. And that came because of the love, Father, that you have offered us. The love you have for us. So, Lord, I pray right now for every Christian that, Lord, that you give us a deep, meaningful, intimate relationship with you where the world and its trappings and the outer surface things, Lord, mean nothing. They're to perish compared to the inward man who's being renewed every moment because whoever's in you is a new creation. And Lord, I pray if there be any who aren't sure whether they've accepted your gift, that tonight they would recognize that's how it all starts. The Father's love, the Son's gift, and the communion of the Spirit. So tonight, Lord, while your Holy Spirit's working on hearts, Lord, even right now, draw us to that yes. And if that be you or anyone here, I'm going to pray a prayer. I ask you to listen at the end. If you agree, I ask you to say amen. And, here's, and that means, and what you're saying is, I agree. Let that prayer be my prayer. So be it in my life. And here it is. God, I'm a sinner. That's clear. But you love me. And you want to pay for that price. And you did it through the gift of your son, Jesus, who died on the cross to pay for it in full and rose again to offer me new life. And right now, as your Holy Spirit's compelling me to say yes, I say yes. As you tell us, now is that day of salvation. Well, then now is that day I say yes. So Lord, please, wash me clean through the gift of your Son. Give me communion through your Holy Spirit. And make me right with you. And make me yours through that love you have for me. I'm yours. I confess Jesus is my Savior having died on the cross on my behalf. And I confess Him as my Lord, having risen again. Make me everything You intend to. Make my roots deep in You. And I'm forever, completely, absolutely Yours, not led by fancy talkers, but by Your Word. Deeply root Yourself in me. Jesus, in Your name, you agree, ask, you say, Amen. Lord, thank you now for what you've done in this time. Thank you for this amazing letter, Lord. And can I just humbly say, Lord, um, may we never have that kind of thing here at this church. But Lord, please, may we see your comfort, your strength, your power. And give us that, Lord, that strength, Lord, to stand up against false teachers. And the compassion, Lord, to see people restored and the boldness, Lord, to see people who are playing games deal with it. Jesus, in your name. Amen.